Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name's Jared. Thanks for tuning in. Today with us, we have Sue. Heidi Ho, Neighborinos. And Grace. Heidi Ho, Cosmic Neighborinos. <laughs> we uh, have, a, as usual, a little bit of housekeeping before our main topic. Our show is so entirely supported by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as a dollar a month and get awesome rewards from thanks on social media to silly watch-along commentaries. And recently, we have adjusted our tiers, um, sort of a little bonus to make more rewards available to more people um, to thank everyone for their support. And so uh, if you're a long-term patron, you might want to log in and just make sure that you are at the level you're getting the rewards you want. And uh, if you are not a patron and would like to support us, you can visit patreon.com slash women at work. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash women at work. You can also support us by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And Sue has some fun housekeeping. Yeah. So if you're following us on Twitter or Instagram, you might have noticed that back on uh, January 23rd, the Picard premiere day, I posted some photos from the Picard Delta activation in Times Square, where CBS was also handing out exclusive Picard posters. Uh, the people there were kind enough to give me a few extras, and we are going to give those away. So we have two exclusive um, Picard posters to give away, and all you have to do to enter that giveaway is send us an email to crew at womenatwarp.com, put in the subject line Picard poster, and tell us your favorite new character from the series. And if you're not paying for CBS All Access right now or or viewing it some other way, um, tell us something else about the Picard series, because, you know, whatever. I mean, you're, you can always say number one and be right. Yeah, accurate. Yeah, <laughs> there's, it's not really a wrong answer in any way, shape, or form. So um, just shoot us that email to enter the giveaway, and that will be open until 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time on March 1st. Fabulous. So our topic today is the baddest women in the galaxy, part three. Da, da, da. I wanna be evil. I wanna <laughs> tell lies. Yes, exactly. So we uh, are returning to our series on women villains of Star Trek. And we this was something we're like, we'll do two parts on this. And we did two parts. And we're like, we still have several other to cover. So <laughs> part three, part three, it is. Um, you can look up the baddest women in the galaxy parts one and two to see a list of who we've all covered as part of this series. And um, we ha have chosen to eliminate uh, some from the list that we feel like we've already covered in other episodes a lot, um, such as Intendant Kira, Dila, Elan of Troyes, although debatably maybe not a villain, um, the Romulan commander, Kayla from Enterprise Two Days and Two Nights. Uh, so, you know, some of these folks we've already focused a fair amount on. So uh, we are going to skip and uh, let us know if you, uh, when we're done, if you think, you know, there's someone else we really need to cover. Um, and, you know, with more Star Trek coming out, hopefully we'll have more for a part four in the future. And inclusion in one of these episodes doesn't necessarily mean there won't be a future episode 
all about that one character. Yeah, these are just yeah. the ones we're covering this time. Kaiwin and Seska both appear in Baddest Women of the Galaxy Part 1, and each of those should definitely get their own episode in the future. At some point, 100%. yeah. 100%. Um, so for today, uh, let us start... Actually, let's start with Kara, since I already named her. Yeah, um, let's do it. And, uh, and Spock's brain. She was played by Marge Doucet, who very sadly passed away in uh, January of this year at age 83, and she was mostly known as a soap opera actress. So who wants to go first on Spock's brain? There's a lot to get into. This, um, for those of you who don't remember, is the one where aliens steal Spock's brain. And it's because they're part of a species where no one is smart, except for occasionally when one of them can be smart. So they steal a smart brain, which is Spock's. It's actually, that is correct. Worth adding an additional layer there that it's not just, it's not people who aren't smart. It's women who aren't smart. It's run by dumb women. And then when they do get smart, they do evil things. And I feel like there's something being said there that we could definitely dig into. But I will first say that I love Kara and all of the other bad guys matching little stirrup pants outfits. I just appreciate that of any coordinated villain look, theirs is probably the least threatening. Um, she's got also got like the awesome go-go boots when she shows up on the bridge. Yes. She's got go-go boots. She's got a lame body stirrup thing and a micro mini. Yeah. If that doesn't scream evil to you, I don't know what does. I guess what was hard for me when I was like trying to look into this episode is that I actually find her, other than the fact that she's the main woman she's totally indistinguishable from all the other women yeah. that are she's different because we're told she's different we're told she's yeah important. so it's kind of hard to like be like who is kara she's one of the this one group. in purple they are just the fantanas in space my god it reminds me a little bit of zoot in monty python and the holy grail <laughs> so fun background fact is that originally gene coon who uh was the first writer on this episode um although it was eventually listed under a different name. Uh, I can't imagine why. And um, But he had originally suggested a world of, quote, little men and, quote, little women. Planet but little women men, sounds amazing. Yeah, and um, the so it's hard because the language in the memos is not great, but, oh. ju like, Justman says that what he's talking about are, quote, unquote, midgets. So, oh, unfortunate, oh, again, yeah. unfortunate language in, in the... Uh, memos but justman suggested bob justman said um and said like we we could find some people but actually how about we go this route instead and said quote the males on this planet being male naturally need the challenge and have reverted in different direction and have become huge hairy brutes who will lead wild savage lives on the planet's surface what we ultimately learn is that when the females need a man they capture one and bring him down into their civilized environment tranquilized and use him until it is time to put him out to pasture again. Good lord. And basically, then there were a bunch of memos going back and forth about, yes, these women need to be really, really gorgeous. God forbid they aren't, I guess. Gorgeous, dumb, and think they're better than everyone. <sighs> yeah, that, that even just adds more to the whole druthers about these lady characters from the get-go. I mean, uh, the, the book These Are the Voyages, um, Mark Cushman talks about how... Um, you know, he's saying like Bob Justman was 14 years ahead of men are from Mars, women are from Venus, and uh, really, so <laughs> really, I mean, that is kind of the message is like that men need something totally different than women, and that um, women left to their own devices will you know stop using their brains and 
they really need men to stay in balance. And men need women to not, you know, go completely feral. Right. (laughs) And that the women need, like, a male brain to be their authority. Yeah. And Spock is brain enough to be man brain for all these women's without brains is brain. Brain. What is brain? What is brain? <laughs> so, so should we hop to another one then that maybe has been less? Sure. Let's uh, let's jump all the way ahead at, or back, depending on whether we're talking chronologically. Backhead. In terms of <laughs> backhead. Backhead to Mirror Giorgio ah. in Star Trek Discovery. There's a lot to cover with Mirror Giorgio. Yeah, she's one of our, our our heavy-hitting, more recurring characters for this episode, and uh, first shows up in the Mirror Universe as the Empress, Emperor, Emperor, they call her Emperor, mm-hmm. um, eating Kelpian. So she's a literal man-eater. We get that off the bat. <laughs> she's one of these rare ones where we do have two versions of this character. Yeah. Right? Because we know Prime Giorgio. And we know her as this upstanding officer, this great leader, this most decorated captain in the fleet, but we don't get to know her for long. We really only know her in two episodes and by reputation. And then Mm -hmm. what's unusual is that the character we get going forward is the mirror universe version of this character. And that's the one we're going to be sticking with, which is very different. You know, usually it's the other way around. Yeah. Um. Usually oh, the mirror version know. is one off. Right. Or or a couple. Once or twice. And that's it. Um, and it's very clear that Michelle Yeoh has a great time oh, playing totally. this character. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting to also see how she has adapted, how Mira Giorgio has adapted to the Prime Universe. How she can play the part of Prime Giorgio and fool people. And that really does make you just wonder more and more about what she got up to in her own universe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, we will probably we will definitely have to revisit her because they are uh, announced they're starting filming for the Section Thirty One show that she'll be starring in uh, soon <gasps> in lovely Mississauga, Ontario. Um, and uh, but yeah, it's really interesting. I really enjoy Mira Giorgio. I think she brings a lot to the dynamic um, in the last season of Discovery. And, uh, um, you know, she has these this tension because she's definitely unlike Prime Giorgio, except for this sort of maternal tie that she feels to Burnham. Mm. Um, and it is interesting. And I, I kind of like the interplay and the like the distrust between them. They do have a really interesting dynamic, yeah. Yeah, like they want to be close to each other, but they also don't trust each other. Yeah, they want to be close to the versions of each other that they cared about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she brings so much more depth to the Mirror Universe than we've ever had before. And to Section 31. Yes. I mean, Section 31 um, previously, I mean, especially when it was very first introduced, was almost kind of like a bit of a caricature. Yeah. And uh, the, I think the farther, uh, like the farther it's gone along, the more kind of nuanced and insidious, and like actually kind of a believable, um, uh, you know, threatening force it is. It kind of uh, was introduced in kind of a Lovecraftian sense of, oh, they've done things worse than you can imagine. It's like, 
You're not going to elaborate on that? Use your imagination. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think, like, she puts, uh, like, a, a face on it, and they, they've they done a really good job kind of showing the linkages to upper echelons in Starfleet, and um, we have no idea how she's getting back to Section 31 after being in the future with Discovery this season, but we're going to see. Um, I'm curious. I think that's also part of what makes her such an interesting character in the, both as a villain and just as a character. She's very engaging and you really want to know what's she going to pull next. My personal theory is that she's going to steal the Red Angel suit and like somehow harness the power of a supernova or like 1.21 gigawatts and <laughs> and get herself back to the future or back to the past, I guess, as it were. Mm-hmm. Michael, Michael, we got to go back, back to the past. That's not informed whatsoever. <laughs> that is 100% like what's happening in my brain. Yeah. Um. So around that, like, you know, a conversation, we talked a little bit about this, I think, in our, our Discovery Season 2 episode. Um. Did we do it? To- yeah. Well, we talked about it at yeah. some point. Think, um, about like this idea of um, is Giorgio redeemed? Or can she be redeemed? Does she need to be redeemed? If, you know, can we have a uh, a Star Trek series that is focused on someone who still thinks genocide is probably okay? Well, there's also the fact that we've still, um, for all the progress we've had in television, there's still a really weird, tenuous relationship with, um, with women who aren't good guys, you know? Mm-hmm. For um, my favorite example still being the comparison that you get between... Uh, Weeds and Breaking Bad in that Weeds kind of fell apart because people realized, oh, we don't support what this character is doing and she's just doing really bad things to people left and right. But people absolutely stuck with that for Breaking Bad. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, again, very, two very different shows, but that's just the quick gist of my argument here in that the media still isn't all that down with following women with sort of conflicted... Antiheroes. Yes. Yeah. Women antiheroes, we don't but, get the same way we do men. Like, what if they did, because um, I, I have no idea how the spinoff show is going to go, so I'm just going to, I'm going to suspend uh, some judgment and, you know, try to remain cautiously optimistic, because yeah. I, I like the character and I like Michelle Yeoh. Um, but what if it was like that show Damages with Glenn Close, and you have someone within Section 31 who could be um, maybe a another woman and um, who could be more like playing the conflicted idealistic character um, who's challenging things from within and Michelle Yeoh's like running the show. That could be cool. Um, oh, and then they pull like a Westworld and make it so their roles are flipped by the end. And it's the wild card who has to be the one to save them all. And the one who was like, Oh, I have morals who makes all the horrible decisions. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think, um, it has to maintain some touch with values, um, but it doesn't have to be necessarily her that embodies them. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I guess the other point to note about Giorgio is that I think um, of all the women villains we've talked about, I think it's pretty fair to say that she is the most... Sexual? The most... <laughs> I was going to say most skilled in combat. In hand-to-hand direct combat. She's the most likely to kick someone in the face. I mean, I think that goes for both our topics. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Although Tara, we did have Tara from Enterprise, who was pretty kick-ass, or kick 
face, <laughs> kick chest. She kicks Arthur Archer in the chest for sure. Yeah, combat wise, she's probably our most competent female villain we've covered. I'm just gonna start referring to people as kick face. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, I don't think she's necessarily the most sexual. She is very sexual, but um, we also have like Inten and Kira, and yeah, but we can't really bring up the fact that we're. Um, even 20 years after the whole Intendant Kira thing, we've got another Mirror Universe character, and part of their whole, ah, there's nothing holding her back is uh, fluid sexuality, and mm -hmm. how that's portrayed as a, uh, not so much just a character trait, but as kind of a character detractor in terms of, ah, right. will she will she commit to nothing? Or at I mean, least that's a straight-up Mirror Universe trait, right? Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's part of the the issue with the mirror universe. Yeah. I mean, we don't know anything about Prime Giorgio. Prime Giorgio and and what she prefers, her mm -hmm. preferences, but um we definitely they they made it clear, very very clear mm -hmm. that um that Mirror Giorgio is definitely fluid and I think definitely implied also promiscuity. Which is yeah. another mirror universe trade that is the problem. Mm -hmm. And another thing that's just very commonly linked in media to bisexual people. So right. that's a that's not good, you guys. It's not not good. that I just want to make clear, not that promiscuity is the problem, yeah. but that linking it to the mirror universe as yeah. a untrustworthy trait yeah. is a problem. Yep. Also, we haven't seen any male guy any guy characters do that in the mirror universe. Kind of Cisco. I mean, he he sleeps with Kira and mm -hmm. Dax while still married to Jennifer. I, I think I meant more in the sense that we don't get that uh, we don't have any what any of the male characters acting uh, gay or bisexual in the Mirror Universe. It's very Doesn't clearly she uh, say that like her Culber or her Stamets was Pan or something. Like, isn't there that part of that scene? Oh yeah. Um, but still, I mean, it's not seen, and it, if it is in there, it is even more still to be a contrast with the Prime mm -hmm. Stamets or Culber. Mm -hmm. I think it was that, I think it's Stamets says something, and she says, like, oh, don't limit yourself. Yeah, Stamets says, no, I'm gay, and she says, not in my universe. Oh, yeah. And then she also says something like, stop being so binary. Yeah. <laughs> so, again, it's like, they're, you know, this one this association is with the mirror universe mm -hmm. that said um i think the character is pretty awesome and it says something in terms of the like where we have gone as a society that it's like unlike you know intending kira and stuff where they have to like remain confined in their universe they're not going to be given their own show that like there's still this isn't considered like something that we have to uh, like, punish the character for. Um, she's punished for other things, but, yeah. I don't know if you, uh, like, as I'm saying this, I'm like, but then again, she also still supports genocide, so... Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's challenging. There's a lot of but then agains with this character. <clears throat> I am, I'm still looking forward to more. Yeah, same here. All right, well, um, so we originally had Stella from Cat's Paw on the list, but we realized that we actually uh, talked about her quite a bit when we did our uh, rewrite episode of Cat's Paw called Cat's Butt. You're um, welcome. So I don't think we really need to talk about her again, um, but we do have another one-off original series character who is uh, Lenore Caridian from Conscious of the King. Yeah. 
This is one of my favorite original series episodes. I love a good Shakespeare reference, and I love how meta and into the theatrical production and sort of the Shakespearean story arcs this whole episode gets, and it's fun as hell. And part of that is uh, Lenore Caridian, who I think it's really cool that we get to see her play a very, very much a kind of stock character that we see in uh, TOS of the, the beautiful woman who's just in a bad situation and is probably going to end up getting like saved from it by Kirk or something, but then she it gets turned around at the end and... I really enjoy. I really enjoy that. I really enjoy how I just said. I really enjoy that just three consecutive times. Uh, but but I you do. like it a whole lot. I really <laughs> really really do. <laughs> Can you remind folks what this episode's about? This episode is about uh, Kirk and crew getting called out to the middle of nowhere to watch a theater performance <laughs> because an old friend of Kirk's thinks that the guy who's ahead of the the acting troupe may actually uh, be a murdering genocide man named Kodos, Kodos the Conqueror? Kodos the Killer? Kodos the Executioner. That's even worse. That's even yeah. worse. And that people who, that the other people who witnessed, uh, who knew what he looked like back when this Kodos the Executioner was alive are suddenly dying one by one. And this actor is only on file for the past 20 years or so. Could there mayhap be more at plot? <laughs> <laughs> Kodos also being the namesake of Kodos, uh, as in Kodos and Kang from The Simpsons. Yeah, we, got, we got Kang also. And then my friend named his cat after Kodos, the alien from The Simpsons, and failed to name it Kodos the Executioner, which I feel like was a mistake. Don't blame me. I voted for Kodos. Mm -hmm. Excellent cat name. But I believe you have some thoughts on her looks. I have many thoughts on her looks. And I will say that um, apparently Nor Lenore Caridian holds one of the records for most costume changes of a guest character. Right up there with um, with Ricardo Montalban. And I want to say there's another one that's escaping me right now. And oh my god, she has some very strange looks. Like... Um, more so than usual. Usually with a love interest character, you get a one-off, oh, that was weird outfit, and that's it. But with her, they really seem to be going out of their way to be like, oh, isn't she lovely? Oh, she's so pretty. Look, she's wearing a dress that looks like it's just a big fur muff. Oh, isn't she precious? Oh, no, she's evil. <laughs> At least that's what I got from it, and that's part of why I like it also. Um yeah, the fur muff with, like, armholes cut in it. She looks like she's a hairy potato with legs. Yeah. She wears those same glitter tights multiple times in that episode also, I want to note. and those, Look, glitter tights are expensive. Those mm -hmm. glitter tights are uncomfortable. Those will chap your freaking legs. Yeah, they will. And then we get to see her finally in her Ophelia costume, and it's completely ridiculous. And it looks like it looks like the costume from like your middle school's play. And oh my god, I love this episode. And I love so, that I feel... Shakespeare has survived into the future, but so has shitty community theater. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like um, we need to remind viewers about the scene between Lenore and Kirk and particularly some of the amazing dialogue that takes place in that scene. Absolutely. And this scene is also part of why I love 
the fact that they are using what we kind of expect from a one-off love interest with Captain Kirk to be. And it's fun to watch it with the hindsight of knowing how it's going to play out and being like, is she playing him? She's totally playing him. I think you two should reenact this scene. Shall we? I want to be Lenore. Okay, so the first quote is just a standalone quote to show how Lenore is playing him. So take it away. And this ship, all this power surging and throbbing, yet under control. Are you like that, Captain? All this power at your command? That made it by the censors, folks. Surging and throbbing. <laughs> oh. Hot. Yeah, I mean, I like that she takes initiative. Um, she's not like some other, you know, she's not just like waiting for Kirk to hit on her. And I can respect that. I mean, to be fair, most of Kirk's love interests don't. Yeah. Because women just find him completely irresistible <laughs> for some reason. He, I mean, he's already in love with the Enterprise, so they have right, to do yeah. the heavy lifting. He's in love with Enterprise. He's platonically in love with Bones and Spock. It's a whole thing. He's in love with a lot of people, places, and things. Man. For sure. sure. But uh, let's let's take away this next snippet of dialogue. And this is one that I'm... I, it's one of my favorite pieces of dialogue to reference from the original series. <laughs> Tell me about the women of, in your world, Captain. Has the machine changed them? Made them just people instead of women? Worlds may change. Galaxies disintegrate. But a woman always remains a woman. All this in power, too. The Caesar of the stars and the Cleopatra to worship him. <laughs> this is so ridiculous. <laughs> it's amazing. But when uh, you watch that bit with the through the lens of, oh, she's taking him for a ride. She's totally doing it. That you, you just kind of love her for that. Mm -hmm. Being like, oh, Kirk, you're so very manly and sexual. Please love me. And then, like, behind her hand, she's, like, giggling because she's like, you know, Cleopatra left Caesar for Antony, right? <laughs> Picard would know that. <laughs> he couldn't even tell that I was wearing a furry pillowcase when I showed up. <laughs> but I'm sorry. This idea of, like, I, I know it started in the 60s, which is why it annoys me. But this idea of, like, equality making women just people instead of women. Yeah. That, like, feminism takes femininity away. It, uh, uh. Which is a dumb fallacy there. Yeah, but it's also, like, what does it even mean a woman always remains a woman? <laughs> I think it means that they had a time-traveling machine and wanted to put a Billy Joel reference in there. <laughs> that's all I can guess. And that's the one I'm choosing to believe, um... So I'm going to rewatch through TOS now, looking for We Didn't Start the Fire, maybe Vienna reference, just seeing where else it is and how deep the Jewel conspiracy goes. Oh, Droxine, she's a real uptown girl. Oh! <laughs> Captain, the engine room, we didn't start the fire! Oh no. Uh, Q is back, uh, but we haven't seen him for the longest time. <laughs> Kirk does go with Jillian Taylor to an Italian restaurant. <laughs> there might be, as you might say, some scenes there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we need to stop. This is bad. Uh, encourage you to share your um, Billy Joel Star Trek crossover references in the comments for this episode. 
<laughs> Trelane is kind of a piano man, if you think about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, ultimately, the episode, it is a little bit, you know, it's not, it's definitely not a feminist episode. Um, Hell no, no. Lenore has, you know, a little bit of agency, but she's ultimately, like, defending her father and, you know, a little bit obsessed with Kirk and unhinged as Ophelia is. Um, so... So kind of like Ophelia. There's also that Shakespearean parallel there of, again, I like yeah. the meta-ness of it, of her being in the costume of a character who's very much in a similar situation as the character she is playing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but highly entertaining. Yeah. It's definitely one of the best wacky costume episodes, I think. 100%. Yeah. All right. Um, so we have a TNG one, Admiral Satie, played by Gene Simmons, but not the one from Kiss. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of costumes, her designer was Georgia O'Keefe. <laughs> <laughs> she, those costumes, I appreciate that she is in a position of authority and is allowed to wear whatever she, want, wear whatever she wants, but... Maybe her outfits are proving that she shouldn't. <laughs> We're going directly into her costumes, but we really do have to reference what a great performance Gene Simmons gives. I mean, okay, the drumhead, I think we can all agree, is in the best TNG, maybe best Star Trek episodes of all time. Oh, bar none. Bar none. For and sure. I yeah. think we owe a big chunk of that to Gene Simmons' performance. Yeah, her, like, her, the role of Admiral Satie as an antagonist is incredibly powerful. Especially because think, she plays it pretty level-headed for so long as we're going through the episode, and then goes kind of full cock, and then you're like, whoa, okay. And she makes well, a great turnaround with it. I think it lets you see how people can come to her position. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it starts out rational. They start thinking, I, I guess, out of fear. Yeah. But then it, it, just, it just builds into this place of irrational unfounded hatred also that the veneer between uh hatred and prejudice it's, it's very thin mm -hmm. biases are part of something bigger and something more, more insidious that mm. hides behind those biases yeah i think um it may be slightly undermined by the ending and how um she's sort of on, like driven over the edge by yeah. the discussion of her father because clearly like her father has been gone for a while and she has like really built this career for herself in his legacy but i don't know that she would be able to just kind of lose it that easily over that um i but that said i mean it's it's still it's a really powerful episode but i kind of um i wish that i don't know that that was necessary actually Still an entertaining episode, though. And um, I think it's also one of those episodes that just really stands solidly as a good indicator of what Star Trek Next Generation is all about. In terms of it's, they do have them, but it's less about the battle out on the battlefield and more about the battle of the mind and the sort of courtroom drama situation. And we get that with a literal courtroom drama episode. Mm -hmm. I think it also stands up really well um not just because of the obvious um you know discussion on xenophobia but this um the way that picard reacts to this situation and the way she reacts that they're um you know she is becoming progressively more suspicious and paranoid yeah um and that she doesn't hesitate 
to throw under the bus anyone who stands in her way up to and including Picard. And um, I think that, you know, sometimes when we are in our current world and we might see someone um, like more marginalized who is being put in a crappy position and we don't want to get involved because we're worried about our own reputation or our own situation. And um, ultimately that's, you know, trying to stay out of it might not even help you. But I think um, that Picard, um, you know, choosing not to stay out of it is also just a really powerful example that it's, uh, you know, we should all, you know, try to step in uh, when you might have the power to change something for someone else. And how um, if you aren't willing to step into that in a situation like that, you're kind of an accomplice. You're kind of helping it happen. Mm. But yes, Admiral Satie, she is tough. She's someone who you really want to, by the end of the episode, you don't like her, but you really want to know more about her whole deal. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to make sure that I got the quote right. If you're neutral in the in situations of injustice, you've chosen the side of the oppressor. Exactly, yes. Desmond Tutu, according to BrainyQuote.com. Mm-hmm. Does sound like something he'd say. <laughs> yeah, and then, I mean, she's obviously a pretty big contrast to someone like Giorgio because she is fighting exclusively with institutional power. Yeah. And that's often power that is not really wielded by women in our society, but we certainly do have examples of, of women who have wielded institutional power to... Um, the detriment of other women or um, other marginalized groups. Absolutely. All right. Onward and upward to Martia from Star Trek VI. I love Martia. What do you love about Martia? I love that she's a badass lady on a prison planet and she takes no guff and she's played by Iman, supermodel and makeup entrepreneur Iman slash actress and I like that she's cool looking and she can shapeshift but isn't all emo about it like Odo. She's just great. <laughs> <laughs> that pretty much sums it up. <laughs> Next. Uh, <laughs> um, apparently they really wanted Sigourney Weaver originally, or at least the screenplay co-writer Denny Martin Flynn did. Um, but they were basically like, we could never afford Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> Um, but it probably turned out okay anyway. And uh, they said that she, they wanted her to be like a female version of Han Solo. Uh, but that, you know, it ended up coming out a bit different. And they chose Iman, uh, not only because she was thought to be a high caliber f- performer, but also because she was, quote, considered to have an appropriate look. Huh. Which doesn't actually say what it it kind of rings maybe exoticization to me, but I, I can't say that for sure by what that said, mm-hmm. by just that one quote. She is one of the original super, super models. And yeah. part yes. of how she was able to make a name for herself is the fact that she visually, she looked different than a lot of the other women who were modeling at the time, not just in terms of being a woman literally from Africa, but also she has an incredibly long neck and those cheekbones and those bright eyes. Um. Mm. And that helped her stand out and get make her the model that she was and also helped her get mm-hmm. into the acting the way she did. I just can't stop thinking of Sigourney Weaver as Han Solo now. That would have that's <laughs> And it's kind of We got Ripley. We got Ripley. It's my favorite thing ever. <laughs> this is what's <laughs> happening in my head right now. Pretty um, great. <laughs> wow. 
So the other forms of uh, Mertia's other forms were the brute. In, was called the brute in the cast. Um, and the young girl and Kirk. Um, I love that so, scene. Yeah, debatably. I don't know that we should even say Martia has a gender. We also don't even know that Martia is its name. Um, but, uh, you know, I think... We want to know Martia's story here, okay? Yeah, and because they, they use Iman's voice for everything except for Kirk. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we can... Iman is a woman and we, we read her as a woman. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's uh, fair for this purposes to... Can include her in this category. A woman who very seductively smokes a tiny cigar. <laughs> yeah. And uh, rescues Kirk and McCoy from big guy with knee nuts. <laughs> Is knee nuts a medical condition? We need to dig into that. We need to have an entire episode devoted to medical uh, anomalies in Star Trek and what we have questions about. Um, so I think we did also talk a bit about Martia in our uh, discussion of the classic Trek movies, which was way back in like our first year oh of, on, on the job of Women at Warp. So, uh, but uh, take a look, uh, listen back to that if you want to hear more about that. Take an ear so, look. You know, it feels like we're moving pretty fast through these, but the reason is because the last one we have on the list is is clearly the most he- uh, the most significant. Um, it's a big one. Yeah, and that would be the Borg Queen. Before we get there, I'm sorry. Isn't it Martia who says not all species have their sexual organs in the same place? Yes. Yes. Can we just give her props for that? Yes. Like yeah. that's that's one of my favorite lines in Star Trek. And they finally <laughs> acknowledge it and like thank you, Martia. Also, it's a non-gendered statement. Uh-huh. It's inclusive. I feel like it's sort of played for laughs though, cuz I mean, it's like, "Huh, you just kicked him in the nuts." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not that we care about such things in this day and age <laughs> okie dokie but back so, to the borg back to the borg the borg queen as it were um so introduced played by alice Krieger in first contact controversial decision so let's start out by talking about this and did the borg need a queen <sighs> man in general i am anti-borg queen not because of either of the actors who who took on the role but because i feel like part of what's so menacing about the borg is the lack of individuality mm-hmm. and the hive mind and that there there is no structure or hierarchy and i don't know the the queen concept just doesn't sit right for me personally in the way that we came to know this villain up to this point. However, I also understand the narrative issues with a villain like that. Yeah. You know, you need an individual to speak to, right? We we had this with Locutus, right? That's why we have Locutus, because there needed to be an individual that they could speak to or negotiate with or whatever. And the enemy but, needs a face. Yeah. But, like, the scary thing is that it doesn't have one. Right? I don't... Mm, that's me. I definitely agree with you on that. I think that the more you look into the Borg, the less sense them having a queen makes. But again, I absolutely acknowledge that narratively speaking, and especially in a series like The Next Generation, where it is so much about having, you know, an argument and conversation-based uh, negotiating and problem solving you need there to be a person that you're talking to and you need to have a person 
who's an authority over the bad guys to be your big bad villain in a big budget action movie. So that's part of that also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had a comment on Twitter from Jana who said, I thought that her introduction made the Borg less terrifying than they were. I really, really liked the idea of a leaderless co- collective. It was more alien, and that's good for a sci-fi show, no? It also definitely plays into a lot of uh, fears of communism and socialism, doesn't yeah. it? Well, culturally I, speaking, culturally speaking. Do you mean that, like, you would end up with a dictatorial leader? Uh, no, that you would end up in a situation where everyone is forcibly equal to an extent and there is no actual individuality. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I thought you meant the Borg Queen in particular. Yeah. I remember reading at some point that they this was a decision of, like, the enemy needs a face made specifically yeah. because it was going to a movie. Yeah, that's yeah. Brandon Braga says that basically um, we realized very quickly the Borg aren't that interesting for a feature film for two hours because they don't say anything. They're robot zombies. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, I mean, it would have been pretty probably boring to just see like a whole, you know, wall of a cube all speaking in unison for all those scenes. I mean, clearly they would have had to redo the design the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But in terms of what she's there for, I appreciate the Borg Queen. I, don't ap- I appreciate how extra she is. Mm-hmm. And that in- that intro intro of her getting lowered onto her body is so freaking iconic. It mm-hmm. is, and she's very sexual, incredibly, yeah. yeah. And I think it's some there's something to be said for the fact that um, in a lot of Star Trek, we have issues with alien women or monstrous women. They need to be pretty in some way, and she is uh, she's very sexual, but she's also very monstrous looking. And I think that's an interesting combination there. She's also in a skin-tight leather suit. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But she's very, like, abject, like the clammy, like, yeah. moist skin. She's got stuff. she's got hooks in her chest, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so I found this academic paper that I think I've referenced a couple times, which was is by Tudor Balanstanu. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. Um, who has published a couple papers um, on the Borg Queen, and the one, this one I'm particularly referring to is the cyborg goddess social myths of women as goddesses of technology technologized other worlds in feminist studies in 2007 and um that's the one that notes that she's associated with darkness warmth and dampness which signify female in mythological settings um like Like anana in the underworld Uh yeah and ultimately is uh, he sort of sees it as um, that she has the potential to be kind of a revolutionary cyborg figure that can unite like nature and culture in the form in, in like a woman's form. And uh, but that ultimately, because she has to be like tamed or controlled by masculine technological mastery, that it it doesn't really succeed. It's more like women's potential power being put back under control mm-hmm. but does actually see that you can you know you can read the board queen cyborg fi- figure as offering opportunities for empowering reinscriptions of cultural definitions of women in the fashion of donna haraway's argument that the cyborg figure deconstructs the nature woman identification so that's like the idea that generally in our society and in our mythology and uh literature that um, woman equals nature and man equals culture or technology so by having woman each equals technology it is destabilizing that that's really funny because there's recently been a conversation happening about 
the lack of representation of non-binary characters, uh, specifically in like the sci-fi fantasy world, uh, non-binary characters who aren't in some way like robotic or an mm-hmm. alien in some way. It's funny mm-hmm. how that how those how those things are both true. Hmm. Yeah. Good point. But one thing that I also found in research, which I would be interested in your thoughts on, um, is Ron Moore talks about, um, you know, s- sort of challenges the idea that the Borg Queen is just a personification of the collective and rather says that um, we uh, we always saw her as an actual person. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? Like, does she have her own will and that is her will supreme over all the collective? That raises so many questions, doesn't it? Because she, she doesn't I mean, talk- that's how I viewed her. Yeah. She doesn't, she doesn't talk the way seven does uh, when she is released from the collective. She, she talks very naturally. She makes innuendo and all that. She flirts. So we got to believe that there's some kind of independent thought going on with her. But if The drones so, are doing her will. Yeah. But how does that work? The way that she talks to Picard, um, and then also the way that she talks to Seven um, when she's played by Susanna Thompson um, and Alice Kriega later, um, there's at least a few examples where it does seem like she has a mind of her own. Like in Endgame, um, she says, you know, you were always my favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dark Frontier, she like herself goes to or sorry not dark frontier um unimatrix zero she goes to unimatrix zero as like an individual and interacts with people and it uh she speaks she uses i not just like we mm-hmm. so i always assumed that she like clearly had access to the hive mind mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but like if you'll forgive the forced metaphor like had admin privileges yeah <laughs> <laughs> No, I think that's a good metaphor. <laughs> you know, like so she's she's part of this network, but she's also Take like this collective and shove it. Yeah, she's also above it in yeah. some ways and outside of it, which gives her this whole level of um, uh, hypocrisy in terms of her being like, no, we're freeing them by making them part of this better thing, but I'm still an individual. Okay, so you don't mm-hmm. you don't want to be an individual seven. That's my job. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah, I just found it interesting. I'm like, I don't know how that would work. And then when you die and you're replaced, how much does that person's will differ from yours? Yeah. But we had a particular request from, uh, another listener on Twitter, the AM Young Project, who said, Mm -hmm. please talk about her relationship with Seven of Nine. Their interactions mirror a lot of parent-child abuse. The Borg Queen as a villain works so well because her behavior is often so human, especially in the Voyager episodes. Absolutely. She really does have an unsettling relationship with Seven in terms of her sort of assigning herself a paternal figure role and being like, uh, she gaslights Seven a lot when they're talking to each other. She's manipulative. She talks down to her and it really does echo an abusive family relationship, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like in it's Dark Frontier where like Seven goes back to the Borg, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and uh she she's like, you know, the queen has reached out to her because of her uniqueness and she's like, We want you to continue to be unique. And I think this is really that's really the episode that really most speaks to the parent child thing because Janeway is kind of the alternate mother figure at that point. And Seven is like trying to figure out who she truly is, and she has the board queen who is like you said, gaslighting her, um, dismissing her emotions. Literally planting her words in her head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
and just keeps like insisting that you're you're really bored you like don't forget who you are you need to stop resisting and she puts her like seven is moving a bit towards her but the board queen keeps you know giving her these tests that she can never pass yeah to like assimilate all humanity please and that a loving parent would never do yeah i mean a loving parent and you know a benevolent leader would never do Mm-hmm. It's um it's interesting. Um and Susanna Thompson, I think, um, does definitely play the Borg Queen differently. Um there it's much less sexualized. Yes. Um it's more um kind of like flat and, and robotic. Um it like a little bit more um, you know, she's a little bit more attached to Seven and to Janeway near the end of her cycle. I honestly thought the first time I was watching through Voyager that it was going to turn out that the whole situation with the Borg Queen's interest in Seven was that she was, like, grooming her to be the new Borg Queen or something. That's what mm-hmm. I always thought was going to be the big thing at the end, and it didn't happen. Well, she's Seven is tertiary adjunct to Unimatrix Zero One, right? And yeah. if we assume mm-hmm. that Unimatrix Zero One is the Queen, mm-hmm. she's like... Mm-hmm. Number three. Yeah. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And it looks I like number like two one, is out of the picture, so. One of the creepiest moments is the one where um, the Borg Queen pulls out the drone that Seven's dad. Yeah. Oh, that is, uh. like, holy crap, that is, I mean, the word abusive almost, like, doesn't seem enough to capture how the Borg Queen is treating oh everyone. God, we straight up get to have the Borg Queen have a you're just like your father moment. Mm-hmm. But she she has this cycle of like I'm going to show you love and then I'm going to threaten you. Yeah, Grace. If I remember correctly, you grew up watching Voyager as your first track, right? One of my first tracks. It was just okay. um, it was on in syndication and it was also on after school, so it was one of the occasionally on in the background shows. Where did you first meet the Borg Queen? Was it Nemesis or was it? It wasn't Voyager? until I was an adult and I watched uh, the TNG movies. So, okay. Now I'm just in in our discussion of this we're obviously going in like air date if you can call it yeah. that order. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious um for for the take of someone who met the Borg Queen first with Voyager, someone who started with Voyager and knows that version, mm-hmm. what is the take if you then go and watch First Contact? First Contact. My take genuinely is like, oh, well they had to sexy it up for the movie. Hmm. That was how I took it. Um, I actually didn't know they had recast. Like, I, what, the age I was when I was watching Voyager, um, I did see First Contact before the Borg Queen made an appearance on Voyager, mm-hmm. but I had no idea that it was a different actress, and I didn't clue in that it, there was a different approach. It's kind mm-hmm. of hard to tell with all the all the makeup and prosthetics, but she does act a lot less sexual on Voyager. Um, she, is, she isn't blowing on anyone's skin or anything. You could always chalk that up to it being on TV rather yes. than in the mm-hmm. movies. So you, I got to wonder if those episodes were kind of kept out of syndication as much as some other ones also. Um, but mostly part of that was that I got to see her in um, on the big screen in terms of she's not just trying to manipulate these individual characters who are in a position of authority or control over Starfleet and in this situation. She's also just a manipulative person in general. And this is what, how she operates. And that is what she will inflict on other people and will inflict upon humanity. Um, One thing I noticed 
in the difference between the Voyager and First Contact is that I really like actually. Um, so they they did a lot of there were a lot of visual changes. One is that like the Borgs are the Borg and their environment is way more green in Voyager. Yes. Um, but um, the Borg Queen in Voyager, both um, the Susanna Thompson and Alice Krieger ones, their throat like their um, where their like larynx is. They've got an it, alien looking situation there. Yeah, it looks like it might be like a coil underneath skin or like something like mechanical underneath skin. Hmm. And it looks like a tubing of some kind and it looks super cool. And I I just want to shout out that small detail. Yes. I mean, couldn't that that be a, a canonical reaction to her fate in First Contact? Oh, it could be. It could be, couldn't it? What part? That, oh, because she... They, they snap like, her neck. Yeah. Yeah. Except for like she also assembles differently in Voyager, yeah. and then when she, she snaps together, back, like when you've got an yeah. action figure that's made of the pieces that came with different toys, <laughs> like like a Kinder Surprise Board Queen, where you have to like find her arm and stick it on. <laughs> but instead of chocolate, it's ennui and lack of individuality. Oh my! Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just think it looks cool. I don't know if they actually put that thought much thought into, into her it. Looking because <laughs> like her the back of her neck looks fine. Um, or like this, it looks the same. Honestly, the hindsight thing, when I found out that it was a different actress with Voyager was because I thought, oh, they, they got a new Borg queen since, uh, since Mm -hmm. the movie. Mm -hmm. And then they bring Alice Krija back, who's fantastic, but kind of kills that theory. Well, apparently they're supposed to be just like, they always have a queen and they're always identical. So that's why, like, it seems like they should be like maturing a queen at all times, like, so that they have a replacement. I like to think they've got a farm out there, like where you teach a kid to fish. It's just a pond with little little neonatal queen Borgs floating around in it for whenever you need to fish one out and put it in charge of the Borg. Mm-hmm. And that was your visual image that I've gifted to you all now. The Borg queen pool. Yeah. Go for a little swim. Get yourself a little a little dictator. <laughs> The queen being like a, a a very sexual woman villain is not ne- is not very novel. Um, no. she's like a demonic, um, seductress kind of trope that um is you know threatening to men, and that's like women's sexuality being threatening to men is is not new and is not necessarily progressive. That Hell said, no. if it had been women's sexuality like obsessed with Janeway and Seven in that way, but you'd only see like a very small hint of that in endgame with seven and the alice krieger board queen where she's like she sort of caresses her face yeah krieger queen but then like that could have been a little bit more interesting to explore um but as it was it, it didn't really challenge anything i think she doesn't challenge anything she doesn't make a lot of sense but i still enjoy that she's there <laughs> yeah i i do agree that like the borg were felt more threatening before the Borg Queen was there. Yeah. Um, especially, but um, I enjoy having that powerful of a female antagonist and uh, the potential, even if we didn't always get fully explored. And I'd mm-hmm. say she's one of the most threatening villains of any of the Star Trek movies. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's definitely fair. Yeah. Cool. All right. So, well, so now um, we get to hope that there's many, many lady figures who are villains who are not necessarily sexual villains in the future. Mm-hmm. Fingers crossed. 
yeah, I mean, we got a whole other season of Discovery coming. We're into Picard, and we'll we'll see where it goes. And there's going to be Section 31. Anything could happen. And Lower mm-hmm. Decks, and the Nickelodeon cartoon. There's potential. And, like, apparently two more live-action shows that haven't been announced yet. What? Yeah. So much potential. Cool. Well, we'll we'll be back then with uh, a Baddest Woman in the Galaxy Part 4 when we have enough to make up a, a full roster. Uh, but for now, Grace, where can people find you elsewhere on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at BonecrusherJank. You can also find me at Emerald City Comic Con in March. It's going to be exciting. Where I'll be channeling about Star Trek and just wandering around looking very confused because crowds are overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> and Sue? You can find me on Twitter at Spaltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. And the first week of March, you can find me on the Star Trek cruise. What? And I'm Jarrah, and you can find me at Jarrah Penguin on Twitter. That's J-A-R-R-A-H Penguin. And to learn more about our show or to contact us, you can visit womenatwarp.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Women at Warp. You can email us at crew at womenatwarp.com. And for more from the Roddenberry Podcast Network, visit podcasts. Roddenberry.com. Thanks so much for listening. The Roddenberry Podcast Network. Podcast.roddenberry.com.